Today's episode is sponsored by Panther. Visit runpanther.io to learn how Panther alleviates the pain of traditional SIM with detectionist code, a robust security data lake, and huge scalability with zero ops. All right, today joining me is Jack, the CEO of Panther Labs, and we're going to get into uh, your background on security and all the things uh, that you've been into because we certainly want to learn more about it. But let's let's start with something very simple. Why does someone name their company Panther Labs? Do you just have a, a love of 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 cats or lions or what? What's the story behind that? The story behind Panther is that, well, first, naming a company is very hard because the name is something that you have to say every day. And when I thought about what I wanted out of a name, the first thing was just simplicity. So, you know, a single syllable Panther and something that's very easy to spell without having to explain it, right? So that, that's like the, the the surface level of like why I like it. But a deeper reason of why I like it is that when we were building this tool and building this platform, the the overall mantra of like something like stealthy and fast and sleek, like that mm-hmm. was really the idea that I wanted in in the name. And I think it just worked so perfectly. So that's then, now, how much did just getting the URL factor into this? Because this always seems like every time you're naming something, you end up on your favorite uh, domain register, just like trying millions of URLs. Yeah. So was it like, hmm. We're never going to get, I assume panther.com is like impossible to get like, or something like that. Was there a lot of uh, angst over finding that? Or was it just like, Hey, it doesn't matter. They'll, they'll Google it. They'll figure it out. Well, we did run Panther, which is also one of our trademarks as well, but run Panther is great. Cause it's like running software and then mm-hmm. Panthers run. So yeah. it's just a great little, um, little phrase that we throw around. We also do own panther.io. So panther.io uh-huh. goes to us. Okay, so you got a, you got a couple of good ones there. So I like it, but it's kind of it makes sense. So kind of stealthy security, right? Kind yeah. of, uh, uh, and then I guess it sort of gives your uh, graphic designers like free reign with the logos and lots of uh, digital uh, artwork with panthers. I assume is hanging around. If you were in offices today, maybe you could have lots of panthers or panther rooms or we conference do. rooms. A lot, of, a lot of metaphors to use there. I yeah, I bought I bought these panther figurines. They're really cool. They're like this big, and um, <laughs> it was like this like porcelain thing that one of my friends found me and sent to me and it's really really cool but our our icon is one of my favorite things so our logo has a, this little like panther face icon but it's actually a shield and oh, okay one of, my, one of my good friends actually did the design and i absolutely loved it so um really really happy with uh a lot of the the things that have come from the name so far well good well good it's definitely it's definitely memorable and i think you know naming rebranding is in the news this week so we won't get into all that because that's going but it's a real challenge right coming up with a name uh is i don't know maybe the hardest it's not the hardest thing but it's just everyone has an opinion right that's the hardest thing at some point you just have to be like this is we're we're panther labs like that's we're moving on and then what's funny is enough time goes by and then everyone um you can't imagine it not being that right and you, you forget like oh there was all this debate and it's like well, of course, those Panther Labs or whatever you came up with. So I like it, though. It's good. It's easy. It's easy to say. He's very memorable, like you said. So well, I mentioned before, you know, you've started uh, Panther Labs, but let's, you know, I always like to go back and kind of understand where people, you know, kind of come from and ultimately how they got into where they are today. And I, I noticed that, you know, you sort of, you know, at least when I was reviewing your background, you sort of kind of like started like out of school, like into security, which at least to me kind of being a little bit unusual. I feel like people kind of find security often, like after doing other things, they kind of find their way into security. So how, how did that happen? So it looks like you went to, what is it, George Washington up in Southern Virginia? Is that right? George Mason. George close. Mason rather up in close. Okay. The other, yeah. the, the other one with George, my bad. Um, but yeah, no, so good. did you kind of like go into school with like a, a mindset about like learning about securities? Like, did it come from like even before you got into college? Like where did your interest in security come from? So it sort of stemmed from my interest in tech broadly. I was always the kid who was helping, you know, my parents with their computers, whatever it really was. And then that just kind of stayed with me all the way into college. And I actually started as an engineering major, major uh, computer engineering. And then I later switched into just a um, more generic technology focused major of IT. And in IT, I learned how to write code. I learned about security. I learned about networking, web design, and it's kind of like a lot of combinations of, of concentrations. So eventually I was like, security seems like a, a very important and impactful thing really for the next 10 years or beyond that, um, really for the whole age of the internet. So I decided to focus on that. 
And in that time while I was at school, I got a job at VeriSign as an intern. And my job was instant response. And I didn't know anything about security then because <laughs> there's a huge difference, obviously, between like reading about you know cryptography and reading about cyber attacks and, and things like that in a book. And then you go, you know, you join as an instant responder and you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. So <laughs> what do I do now? And I remember my manager, his name's John. He showed me how to use a SIM for the first time. And he explained to me about, you know, what a compromised machine meant and what malware was and how all these things work. And then what we do when we find a compromised machine and why we need to eradicate them and how do we track them? How do we track malware and all these things that really built a really solid foundation for me to take my next job, which was at Yahoo. So right. those um, before we get on that, like go back. I think it's really interesting yeah. in college. Like I you know a lot of people who, you know, kind of go in the idea of like like to build stuff, right? And that leads a lot of people to yeah. like computer engineering, computer science, and um, you know, sometimes mechanical engineering if you're like more physical. And so I think it's really interesting. So like what's you know, because your switch there, I think, is 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 just interesting. Like, you know, you kind of go, I don't know, I'm going to just ask you. It's like, did you kind of go from like, I want to like build like brand new things to like, I want to kind of like interact with things that exist and break them and fix them? Like, is there, was there something like, you know, that drove that decision in, inside you? Yeah, I mean, I had no idea really what computer science even was in those days. I mean, this was like, you know, more than 10 years ago. And this is before I lived in Silicon Valley. So it's like when you're not here, you're not really exposed to that culture because the culture of the Washington, D.C. area is really around government. And that's really everything. If you think about like government contracting, even in technology, that's the whole focus versus out here in Silicon Valley. Everything's around startups and building companies and building tech companies and building SaaS companies. And like it's a whole other culture. So for me, I was like I knew I knew that I was technical. And I knew I enjoyed working with computers. I just didn't know how I wanted to really build a career out of that. So I started with computer engineering and was a little um, a little turned off by it. I think I just didn't really feel like I was going to enjoy you know, my time in school learning about these things. And I wanted to switch to a major that I felt like I could be more successful at. And I didn't even consider computer science funny enough, like looking back. Because <laughs> um, I didn't really know what computer science meant, to be honest. I was just like... right. You know, a kid out of high school, I was, you know, so young. I didn't, and, I, and again, because the culture is not like it is here where, you know, everyone's parent out here is an entrepreneur or an investor, or it's like, you know, tech is in their blood. They know it, you know, right, and right. of course they're going to put their kids into the CS program at like Stanford or something. You know what I mean? It's just not like that in Virginia. So um, I chose IT and, you know, started to learn a little bit about these things. And I found that I was really good at that. And, you know, I did really well in, in school. Um and with security, it's interesting because there's not, there's nothing you can really truly study. Like security is one of the things you just have to like work in the field, like most things, right? But security, especially, it's like I, I applied for jobs for a very long time and it was like application security or data security or it was a very specific focus that wasn't incident response because incident response and detection is really only a thing you need in bigger companies. And, and again, like, the focus of the DC area is government. So and government is extremely slow. I remember when I, I was applying for jobs, um, I had actually gotten my job at Yahoo. I had started at Yahoo and I got a response from one of the government things I applied to like <laughs> eight months later. And they're like, Hey, you've been selected for an interview. I was like, I already moved. I like moved across the country and I've already started another job. Like how in the world? Like it, <laughs> it's insane. Um, yeah, so then that's, of course, you have all the uh, certifications and like clearances you need, right? Not allowed, you know, if you get the job, oh, yeah. you have to like set around to get that. That's a whole other thing. It's so, insane. well, that's like, a good, I mean, that that's actually a good segue then into. So, it sounds like you got some experience at VeriSign, maybe like learned what you didn't know. Like, sometimes that's the best thing about the first job is like, wow, this is like, and then, you know, it sounds like that led to Yahoo. So, like, tell me about that. How'd you get a job at Yahoo? And, like, I mean, when yeah. you talk about security, it seems like that's at least a, probably the time you were there. And even now, it's like, that's sort of the big time, right? It's like, wow, that's probably one of the most attacked organizations in the world. So like, what's the story of Yahoo? How'd you get in there? My managers from VeriSign moved there. So <laughs> they got a job at Yahoo. And when I graduated, they were like, hey, Jack, like we, we really enjoyed working with you. We're building a team at Yahoo. Why don't you come out and interview? I think this yeah. is just like, we should just pause. This is like lesson one in getting jobs. It's like work with people, find people you like that like you, and then 
it, the job seemed to follow from that. So good for you. Like you learned that. It's great. You learned that in like your first internship. Well done there, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Actually, you know, it's funny. I never made the connection, but that's exactly how I got hired at Airbnb as well. I never yeah. made that connection that it was, I got both of my jobs in Silicon Valley from, for that exact reason. I never made that connection. That's so funny. I'm sure um, like if we were to like, count up the statistics, I'm sure the high percentage of people like this is the way like people are like, well, how do you get a job? It's like, well, usually it starts with people, you know, so like if you don't know people go yeah. meet people, but uh, I mean, that's right, so, so they, they pull you into Yahoo and uh, what, like what'd you end up doing? I ended up doing the same type of work I was doing at Verisign just at a completely different scale. I mean, Yahoo had probably one of the biggest infrastructures in the world and because you know they they were such an iconic company in the in the early 2000s and in the 90s and things like that and then you know obviously we know what happened with their fate of um you know getting acquired by by Verizon and um splitting into into two sort of companies um and they kind of like fell from their their position that they were at at one point but regardless the technology and the talent in Yahoo is incredible some of the smartest infrastructure people i ever met in silicon valley worked there and then, you know, they've gone on to work at other companies now, but it's like, I had such an amazing opportunity to truly learn about scale at Yahoo. And at that time, so I actually got really close with the Facebook team as well. So it's like, I got a glimpse of like what they were doing. Too. Both. That's nice. Yeah. So like kind of maybe for everyone, you know, that hasn't maybe worked in like a security group, certainly something as big as that. So when you say you're sort of doing the same thing, was that incident response? Like kind of like, how was like, how is this a Yahoo security team kind of organized? And like, when you say incident response, what do you mean by that? Sure. So security teams broadly are broken out into a lot of different areas. So there's application security, which is the actual security of the application that you're protecting. So that is how, like, if a user goes to yahoo.com and they're using, like, Yahoo Mail or whatever it was, it has to do with, like, taking user input, making sure it's sanitized, making sure that access into the user data is is secured and all those things. Like, that's AppSec. And then there's other ways of just, like, accessing the application, too. Um, so that's not what I focused on. Um, and then there's data security, which is, like, how do we protect our PII at rest? You know, there's a lot of things you could do there. There's infrastructure security, which is how do we protect our systems from an infrastructure perspective, right? And then there's incident response and, or it's called, you know, detection and response, or every team has a different name for it. Sometimes it's called CERT or CERT or whatever it is, but the core thing is incident response. And incident response is the identification and response to cyber breaches. So if an attacker gets in through some vulnerability um, in any part of the environment, and they get to some data and they steal data or they compromise the system or they drop malware or whatever it may be, it's our job to detect and respond and eradicate those. And that's the work that I always did as a practitioner. Right. And is this where you sort of get your hands dirty with, uh, I assume Yahoo, does Yahoo have a, a SIM they built themselves or do they have some products they use? Is this kind of like when you're kind of getting hands on with that world? So they, I mean, they used a lot of the, industry known tools i shouldn't say which ones um but you know it's same tooling that everyone else was using at the time and the thing that is a very interesting about security tooling is that there was never something purpose-built that worked at scale so we used like one of the you know biggest log analytics solutions but we had to build a bunch of custom stuff to make that actually work and even then we only had like like our data retention is not where we wanted it to be. And <laughs> very short, right? Really, very, uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, this, the, this, is the, this is the classic security sim problem. It's like, it's a pain to scale. It's really difficult to store the amount of data that you want. It does nothing around uh, data cleanliness. You have to take care of all that yourself. And that's not really what those tools were designed to do. And really what you need in security are these like very structured, robust like data warehouses, basically that have security workflows for detection and response. At the end of the day, our goal is to have extreme operational awareness on everything going on and then be able to identify certain attacker TTPs to prevent and detect breaches, right? I mean, that's the whole goal. But, yeah. you know, at Yahoo, I mean, Yahoo's a, a very massive infrastructure or was a massive infrastructure. I'm sure they still have a lot of it. Um, so a lot of, this, a lot of the things that existed in the early days actually had to get built custom. Even at Yahoo, just for doing like configuration management, they had their own way of doing it because literally nothing existed at scale. So in a lot of ways, it's very synonymous to like the work that I did as a security practitioner because 
not a Yahoo, but an Airbnb because we we built our own thing at Airbnb for doing sim, um, which then was the precursor to my maybe company. Maybe let's just pause because I, I think we're throwing yeah. around the term. Maybe maybe not everyone knows what sim is. So why don't you just take a moment, mm. like fi- define what it is and look, both maybe how you're using it then and like what it means. You know, has it evolved or if it's evolved? Sim is just a platform for security events. Security event information management is what it stands for. But sim is this like. It's kind of just associated with tools that don't work very well, usually. And out here, or at least like in the teams I worked with, everyone would always roll their eyes about a sim because they were just they they were always painful for some reason. And the reason was that, you know, they didn't scale very easily or really at all. Um, they were just a pain to use and they didn't they they weren't very useful. They were hard to customize. They were hard to really get the value out of them we needed to. And right. that's kind of what emerged over time of this, ha- of having this, like such a, such a bad experience with them forever. So, so I think like it would be fair to say, like them. as a security engineer, it's sort of like, you know, you gotta, you're really trying to like scan through all of these logs, right? I mean, that's really the thing. And then you're trying to make sense of it. And that's, you know, I think to your, your broader point here, sim tools kind of all make different claims about how easy that is. Right. <laughs> and, it's so and subjective. It's, yeah, it's very subjective, right? And sometimes, yeah. like, sometimes it, it finds what you want. And I think a lot of times it finds, I mean, again, speaking generally, it can find a lot of noise, right? And I think that's either doesn't find things you want or finds a lot of noise, right? So I think that's where, at least when I'm talking to security people, like, that's sort of the frustration, right? Like, figuring out, like, tuning it. And, and so I'd imagine that's, like, a big part of, like, making stuff work at Yahoo is, like, figuring out what matters and what doesn't. Well, I mean, even at that scale, it's just a matter of, like, how do we just get the data? Mm-hmm. That, like how do we even go from zero to one like that's the hard part you know a lot of it is is you know the thing that i've said for many years now is like security is a data problem and what that means is like just to just to instrument and operationalize getting the data somewhere is such a hard problem and most mm-hmm. people haven't solved it and like that's really the core of what we were trying to build so what i built at, at yahoo was um you know i teamed up with the devops team and i, I learned an, an incredible amount about configuration management, about deploying tools at scale um, and deploying logging at scale. And my whole project was to create a logging pipeline for Yahoo's infrastructure for our security tooling. And it was massively deployed and it, it was very complex because it had to be. Um, right. And is this where like, it looks, sounds like you, did you use Chef? Was that the uh, kind of the, yes. some of the tools that you used? Because I think, Yes. Um, you know, we have a, a, a strong listener group that likes Chef and is very much into that. So maybe like dive into that a little bit. So as a from a security yeah. perspective, because we know, all, I mean, I think a lot of people know it from config management. From a security perspective, how did you use it? What did you do differently with it? Oh yeah. Oh, I, Chef is actually how I learned how to write software. Funny enough. So <laughs> seriously, I I learned you know as a no, security. I, I think you're like among many people. I think that is very true. But go on, please continue. So as a practitioner, I learned, you know, very rudimentary Python. And it was always like, oh, I'm going to write a Python script to, you know, analyze this, this log data, which is like kind of telling of like how bad the sims were, right? Because it's like, oh, I had to literally copy files to a Linux box and then like write Python to analyze it. And it was just a horrible, horrible world to live in. <laughs> um, and then the alternative to that is, why don't I use a tool like Chef to deploy something like OS Query, which will give me structured data about a system? and then send it to a single place. That's a much better world to live in. And then we use a tool like a sim to actually analyze the logs and extract analytics and answer questions at scale. Like that's the world that we want to live in. So, so it's like Chef, to, like helping you instrument, like you're trying to roll out your instrumentation so you're getting the information you want. Is that a fair summary of what, you're, what you described there? Yeah, so Chef is, I mean, Chef is the mechanism for you to get your tool everywhere, right? And set up in the mm-hmm. way that you need it to be set up. So when I was learning, you know, I, I approached the DevOps team from a securities perspective and I was like, I have a tool I need to deploy to, you know, over 100,000 systems effectively. And how do I do it? And they they were the team responsible for migrating Yahoo to Chef, which was right. a massive, massive <laughs> undertaking bet. because their right. infrastructure is so complex and has so many flavors of of Linux and like, there's there's just so much complexity with doing something like that. Also with systems, because you have engineers, you, you know, you have thousands of employees using those systems and logging in, you have no idea what the state of that system is. And this is before, you know, 
Kubernetes. This is before containers were really mainstream. Like that stuff was just starting to to exist. And you just don't know the state of the system at that time. So when you're running config management, you have to keep that in mind. You have no clue where you're starting or where you're ending after that chef runs. Um, after that chef run completes, I mean. So it really like it's a completely different mindset from writing software. Like infrastructure code versus software, like fully a completely different persona um who writes it right. and deploys it so did you actually get um, into like did you like create some like get with the team and like create the cookbooks and get your stuff in yes. and like you know you like sort of had your mm-hmm. section right for the standard build and then i'm sure there's all of the other stuff so you got to that level where you kind of got everything embedded yeah i actually wrote the os query cookbook that's on the chef supermarket fun funny enough but well, i haven't maintained go. it well i, well, they, I don't know it. you're either gonna get some maybe some fan mail or some hate mail i don't know how you know we'll have to see <laughs> we'll see how, oh, see how well, that goes I mean, I mean, when I became a founder, it's like, I don't have time. Um, but I built it at Yahoo. And then when I went to Airbnb, I also built another version of it because I deployed it at Airbnb as well. And um, yeah, I mean, Chef Chef was a game changer for me. I mean, it it, it taught me how to write software and mm-hmm. it taught me what, what testable software is and what scale, like, scalable deployment of software meant. And I actually ended up teaching the chef class at Airbnb for a couple of years while I was there uh, because wow, there were big chef nice. users as well. And like when I got in and I saw that what they were doing with it, I was like, oh, man, you guys hacked this together initially. Um, but that's how it is. <laughs> doing it the wrong right. way. <laughs> well, you know, they, they, they were software engineers building infrastructure. And it's like it's not the right mindset. Like I'm saying, it's, it's a very different way of thinking about the world. So when I came right. in, I, I just I had seen what they had built, and I was like, "It's impressive, you know, what you did at scale." But like, these are some things I think we should really think about because I had to do the same thing. I had to come in and basically deploy to Airbnb's whole infrastructure, which was mm-hmm. much much smaller. And when I saw the size of it, I was like, "That's it!" Like, oh, cool. I mean, I'm sure it's much bigger now, but at the time, yeah. I was well, just like going from Yahoo to Airbnb. I was like, "Oh, this is gonna be easy." Like, well, I'm sure you know, had to step this. back at that point, right? Well, like, so so that's a it's a kind of a cool path to kind of like dig in a little more. So you obviously got the chef cookbook, you wrote it, you got everything out there, you know, got you start to get all this information. So then, what did you do at Yahoo? So now all the data's streaming in. Sounds like you're using some you know off the shelf sims, or, and you're you know fighting fighting the good fight against them. But how did you get to the point of like you know the operational dates? Like, okay, I'm getting the information I want. I'm getting the right events and I know what's important. So like, what was the the leap that you had to do on that side of the house? I mean, at that point, it's like we use things like threat intelligence to like, we would get threat intelligence. We would look at what a recent attack was. We would see if that happened in our environment and we would use the system like the log analytics tool or the SIM or whatever it is to uh, do those searches on the data that we had collected. So you can do it that way. You can create. What's what do you mean by uh, threat intelligence? So like what like so you you show oh, up yeah, at sure. the, you show up at the on whatever a Wednesday. Are you like looking? You're looking at threat intelligence. What what does that do? What does that mean? Threat intelligence is effectively a report around a recent breach, or it's it's some activity for certain types of threat actors. So, like the U.S. Uh, what's the one that I use that's free? There's there's a handful of, of open source threat intelligence feeds you can get. But they're right. basically just reports around attacks or it's like, hey, this organization saw, you know, these actors from X country, you know, they dropped this malware from these IP addresses and it has these hashes and like, you know, these are the behaviors. They edited this file and, you know, X, Y, Z. And it's just basically a whole report of what happened. And then what security teams can do is they can say, oh, OK, let me see if any, anyone has done that in our environment. And then they'll search for those same tactics in your environment using those same indicators. So an indicator is like an IP address or a command and control, or it's a domain or it's malware or whatever it may be, or certain behaviors on a system. Um, you can you can look for that in your SIM. And that's what we would use to determine if, you know, maybe we were hit by the same attackers. You never know. So, right. so you, you, can, you kind of have that side. And then are you also then doing it simultaneously, just looking for like, you know, suspicious activity that you find only in your environment, like, you know, network things, like yep. sort of things just kind of like popping up. So like, what are, what are some of the things that you're either both setting up and looking for on your own, right? That maybe haven't been reported yet. Oh, I mean, there's, there's a whole slew of things. I think broadly though, it's like, as the team inside the company, you know how the company should be operating. Meaning like, you know what a normal engineer is doing. And right. you know how data should be accessed from your application. So look for things that don't match those norms. 
that's effectively what security is doing. You're trying to you're trying to understand is someone accessing company data using company systems in a way that could hurt the company in some way. That's really what you're trying to prevent. And there's right. a ton of ways to do it, right? It's like you for example, I'll give you a really basic example. Is someone exfiltrating data? Is someone taking PII or taking some some crown jewels that we have and 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 moving it at a high scale out of our network? Like that's a very basic check that most teams are probably looking for. That, that, that's actually why an entire slew of tools called DLP exist for that exact reason. So you can look for things like that. Um, you can look for like people mining Bitcoin, for example. That's a really common one. <laughs> right. And that's not necessarily like, like that's more of just like improper usage of systems. Right. You know, there's things like that. Right. I think it's broadly, I mean, it seems like that's like, you know, people kind of broadly say anomaly detection, right? And so that's really what you're looking for. Like any type of like network traffic's an anomaly, data access yeah. is an anomaly, people like accounts showing up that you don't know about. Like, you know, if you do like an audit of like, hey, there's a hundred new accounts that nobody knows. Yeah. Right? So I think exactly. that's sort of the kind of stuff that I, I hear people doing. So yeah, anomaly well, then, detection is one for sure. Um, well, what about, you know, probably can't share that much, but I think it would be interesting because Yahoo, at least, you know, when you were there, it was pretty big scale. Like, can you like impress upon us like what like what do we what is the general public or this audience probably like what do we not really know about like how, like the security at such a large group is it like they're getting attacked like a, you know ten times more than we would expect that it's uh, you know it's coming from all over the world like it, it just like give us a sense of the scale because I don't think a lot of us probably really understand you know just how many things are happening out there against large sites like Yahoo. I think at a company of that size, just naturally, it it's going to get more and more complicated and more difficult to track the more people you have. So, for example, people could, you know, an employee could download, you know, Game of Thrones to their laptop, and that could look like compromise. Right. So, so, so it's just like, that's one small little example of like something that could be happening, right? It's It's not necessarily bad. It's not good. But it's not attacker behavior. You right. Know I mean? It's not so something it's like, you need to be concerned with. Right? There's a lot of these little things that happen all the time where the security team just rolls their eyes and they're like, like <laughs> someone was just doing something, you know, they shouldn't have been, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. And then you have things like truly you hope there's never a real breach, right? Mm-hmm. Like you hope. So at, at scale and you have when you have more systems and when you have more people that just makes you more vulnerable for a lot of reasons right the more systems you have the more systems that you have to patch and keep secure the more employees you have the more probable it is you'll get fished right because there's yeah, many bigger attack service yeah. mm-hmm. it's just a bigger attack service exactly so it's like that's really the big consideration is like you just have to think about security and like you know a small company is very different from security in a large company because of that attack surface. And especially now it's gotten even worse because the attack surface has gone from, you know, behind the firewall to, you know, hundreds of SaaS applications, which is a completely different security challenge in my opinion. Um, so it, yeah, it, there's not a really easy way to answer the question. I mean, I, I can't like talk about things that happened, obviously. <laughs> yeah, um, no, no. Nor would we want some to of them are in the news that, you, you know, are public, right. but um, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, just, that makes sense. Attack surface management is a huge part of it. It's just, but also in security, I feel like most people at that scale take this mentality of like, I'm not even going to look at certain parts of the environment because it's just going to be noise. And we should really just start with the first principle of like, if this one thing got breached, it'd be very bad. So we're going to protect that very, very well. So an example of this is I know of a company um, that didn't even look at laptop logs. They were like, we don't care about the laptops. We're literally just going to look at the production environment. That's going to be the thing we focus on. And I think it's actually a really interesting strategy because it's like that's at the end of the day, like where, you know, most of the things are that are very valuable to them. So that's an approach you can take as well. And it really just varies on like the mentality of the the leadership in a security team. What do you think is that kind of, I feel like what you're describing there is sort of like kind of a, one of the principles of zero trust, right? It's sort of like, well, I got to know where my most important things are and I just have to assume you know, that's got to be protected. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're coming from the corporate network or a corporate laptop or you're just off the internet. It's like, I, I just don't care. I just don't trust any of you. So is that kind of what you're alluding to there? Yeah, I mean, that that's, that's yeah, effectively it. Okay. Well, it sounds like, so you left Yahoo and you kind of mentioned it already and you went to Airbnb, but it sounds like your role changed. Like not only were you, it sounds like you're teaching chefs 
classes, but I don't know where you, is it fair to say you're almost like a software developer working on security? Is that kind of how you viewed that position? Like, like what's kind of the switch that's going on in your career at this point? So I made the jump from analyst to engineer because the job of analyst wasn't scalable. There was no way I could do my job. I had right. to become an engineer. Like it was necessary for me to even do detection at that, at that scale. So right. I became an engineer literally out of necessity and out of frustration because none of the tools that we had were working. It was very, it was just impossible to do my job. So I learned how to write code. I learned how to write infrastructure code and do these things and deploy tools and get data back in a structured way in order to actually do security at that scale. So my job title at Airbnb was uh, security software engineer, I think, like my actual title. Um, right. And that was the first software engineering job I had at Airbnb because I wasn't technically a software engineer at Yahoo, even though I was doing that job. Um, I joined Airbnb with that purpose of like, I'm going to write code for security tooling. So that right. was the shift that happened in my career. Yeah, it makes sense. Because I think, you know, I think your experience, and I think it's interesting to hear from a security perspective, it parallels a lot of like sysadmins to becoming SREs, right? It's sort of like you have to by definition to do your job, you have to do it at scale, which really necessitates you like learning how to, you know, I think the chef people say automate, but really behind the scenes, I mean, it's like writing the code, right? So it's mm-hmm. interesting, like, you know, you're, you're kind of experiencing the same progression in the security world that like, I think a lot of people experienced in that. So, well, it sounds like Airbnb was a lot, you know, smaller when you got there. So I don't know, was it kind of a clean slate where you sort of been able to kind of like quote, do it the right way when you got there? Or was it, you know, kind of like a big mess? Like what, what went on and how did you, how did you kind of, you know, address some of those challenges? The security team was a clean slate actually. So we had the opportunity to do something different in security. So I was hired as one of the first engineers in the, in the detection team. So the security, the broader security team had already existed, but not that, not that much longer before I got there. I think maybe six months. And I was hired to help build the detection tooling. And my manager, uh, he had come from Facebook and the other person in our team had come from Dropbox and I'd come from Yahoo. And we were just like, we know that security is painful and doing detection at scale is painful because, you know, XYZ tooling just doesn't work. We don't want to use it again. So why don't we build something, which is kind of a kind of a trap most of the time. But right. what we did that was different is we built something that was open source. And okay. we built this tool and it was designed to analyze logs at scale. And the way it did it is by using a tool called AWS Lambda, which is a serverless sort of compute platform, right? You give it application code, it runs it for you. Uh, you don't worry about scale. And coupling Lambda with something like Kinesis or SQS or like the, one of these like um, buses or pub sub systems allows you to have very complicated infrastructure with basically no overhead. So what we what you know my manager had come up with was it, this design where you send log data through one of those systems, it gets analyzed with Lambda, and then you get an alert if if some something matches. And Lambda at the time had only like two or three language languages that were supported and one of them was Python. So we were like, cool, okay. this actually works really well, right? It's like right. security people know Python, they love Python and they're used to analyzing logs with Python just based off of log files on local systems. So what if we just did this in a way that was cloud native and actually scalable? And you know, ultimately I, I introduced the data lake element of that later, which was why don't we write this data out to S3 and then use a tool like Athena, but that's like a whole other separate conversation. Um, but the basic idea of like, let's use serverless for security was a really, really good one. And we built this tool and, you know, it was definitely very hacked together in the beginning, but it became much more structured over time as, you know, we had built the team, scaled the team. Um, I eventually stopped writing code for it and, and, and had other people, uh, in our team writing it. Uh, I was, okay. I was What's the name? With... So is it still available? It's called it's open source. What, what is it? It's open source. It's called Stream Alert. Okay. It's on Airbnb's so, GitHub. So, all right. Well, if anyone wants to check that out, we'll put a link in uh, the show notes. Go find that. So, I guess the part of there, maybe let's connect the dots a little bit. So, were you running uh, Lambda? Was running on Amazon on AWS, right? Is that where mm-hmm. you wrote all your Lambdas and deployed them? And so, your so so Streamer is what just basically piping in like the data 
that you want the land uh, to transform on? Is that is that how it was working? Like, so go. I mean, Streamalert is a. It's more of like a framework for analyzing logs because you can mm-hmm. take log data from S3 or SQS or whatever, mm-hmm. and then run some Python detections on it and get some alerts. Like that's like a very very simplified wor- version of explaining it. And it was all deployed with Terraform. So going back to like the whole infrastructure as code thing, like right. I learned how to write Terraform and I learned how <laughs> I learned what yep. AWS was when I joined Airbnb because I didn't really know anything about Amazon at that time because uh, Yahoo didn't use Amazon. They used their right. own internal cloud, right? Like that was just every big company was like that then. Um, so yeah, it, it, it used Lambda and a tool like Kinesis, which was the, the pub sub. It was basically like, the equivalent of Kafka for serverless. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. And so it sounds like, um, you know, normally I'd say like, Hey, what, what inspired you to start Panther? But it feels like, you know, was this the Genesis? It felt, it feels a lot like, um, what you built there is, I don't know, was it the the beginning of the thoughts of like, Hey, maybe we should build, build our own company and just provide this to everyone. Is it, is it that simple? Yeah. So when we built stream alert, it, it became open source in January of 2017, and then it became widely adopted in, in a lot of Silicon Valley companies. And I realized actually after I left Airbnb how much adoption there actually was because I started doing research into it and I was just asking a ton of people about it. And I just found so many other companies using it. And I was like, whoa, I had no idea that the impact actually was was this high. So couple couple with you know coupling that with knowing that a lot of other teams were using it and also with my own career it was like well i can join another security company and or sorry i can join another security team and basically rebuild and do the same thing over and over or i can build a company that just focuses on this thing makes this an enterprise grade solution that's actually extremely scalable takes a lot of the concepts that worked really well and just make it make it great make it actually competitive to the rest of the tools in the market right um and i chose to do that also because I had the yeah. opportunity to, funny enough. Um, but, you know, there, there, there were a lot of things in StreamAlert that I wanted to redo and change. And, you know, the, the first one was that it was a fully command line oriented tool. And that's just not something you can do in an enterprise, right? You can't expect, you can't expect people who aren't engineers to use that tool. Um, and it, it works to, to, to an extent on, on scalability, but there's a there's a scale limit with it and that was a thing we wanted to rebuild for so we we made a completely different architecture shift and everything um at panther but even before panther was a thing i actually just i had a i had an investor email me and he mm-hmm. was like hey jack streaming was pretty cool um do you want to do you want to meet and talk about how we could make it a company maybe and <laughs> i was like okay yeah this sounds cool yeah Nice. Uh, so, I, well, there, hey, was, I think for everyone listening, there's this is an like open source success story, right? It's like, hey, you know, build a great yeah. open source thing. You know that 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 maybe uh, you're not the one having to ask for the introductions, right? They're introducing themselves to you. So so kudos to you. So was that the beginning? Was was that investor? Was that the 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 person that kind of helped you get it off the ground? It was, yeah. So I I'm a sole founder, and I had zero startup experience um, going into building a company. So. He was a really great mentor and still is. He, he's a great mentor for me as an entrepreneur. Um, and in the early days before we had a product and customers and things like that, he was really helpful in like orienting my mind around what it takes to build a company because it's a very different ballgame. Being an entrepreneur and being a founder and CEO is, is literally an opposite universe from being an engineer. It's literally like I'm seeing kind of behind the curtain of what it takes to run a company like Airbnb, for example. And like right. after running and raising money and building a team, it's like I've started to learn these things. So it's it's so interesting for me just have going through, you know, going through this journey that I'm going through right now and making the switch from being a practitioner and being very hands on to just running a team and setting the vision of the company and making sure our customers are happy and all these things. Right. I have this like very full circle sort of thing happening where I was the person running the tool. Now I'm the person responsible for yeah. the people building the tool so well that that's pretty cool well how big like give us a sense like how, how many employees are at panther today like how many customers like kind of what's your the universe you're working with day to day yeah so maybe i'll just give a quick i'll let me give a little more context about the company and then i'll answer that i think it's it's helpful to understand so when i left airbnb um we started completely from scratch and 
for a lot of reasons, obviously. Part of it is like a legal reason of like, I didn't want Airbnb to get mad that I was like building a company about stream alert. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to restart from scratch anyway, because there was a lot of decisions that I wanted to undo. And also the early team that I had brought on also was from Amazon. So they had built a very similar solution in, in their own team at a much, much bigger scale, obviously. So we sort of put our heads together and built, you know, the V, the V one of Panther that had a UI and it still had the detections as code and it had, um, the Python elements and the serverless elements and like a lot of the core things that made Stream more successful were still in Panther. But the whole idea with Panther is that this is an enterprise grade tool that, you know, Coinbase could use or Dropbox could use or whoever. And those are our customers I'm naming. Um, so in the early days, it's very hard to, to start a company, obviously, and raise money and build a team and get product market fit. And um, since those days, you know, going to 2020, 2020 was like really, I think, the key year for Panther. Because it was actually when we open sourced uh, Panther, we had a we had a community version of Panther for about a year, um, but we open sourced it in 2020 because we were like, well, we really want to get security engineers in the platform, and we think this might be a way to do it. And in in retrospect, it it was probably still the right decision. We ended up close close sourcing this year for other reasons, mm-hmm. but if we didn't make that decision, you know, who knows if we you know would even be here today? So we open sourced, got some initial users. You know, I posted on Hacker News and, you know, we got like 400 stars in a day or something. You know, it's not that big of a deal or anything like it's it's still fairly low compared to a lot of other open source projects. But I think it just it was a forcing function for people to start using us. And that allowed us to build some early trust. And then we eventually signed on our first couple customers in June of 2020, which actually, funny enough, like right on my 30th birthday were our first two our first two customers, which was awesome. And then nice. since then. Um, we're up to 38 customers. Um, so last year, I think we ended with about 10. Um, and they were just like smaller contracts, just like initial customers getting in and using the platform. And uh, our team was about 20 at that time, uh, at the end of 2020. Uh, the team now is, is we're going to end the year at about like close to 95, if not 100. Um, we've been growing the team very fast. And Army, are, we've been growing our customers just as fast to be honest i mean going from 10 to almost 40 um when you're talking about like mostly enterprise deals is is a lot so i think this was the year we kind of found our product market fit and it's very interesting because when you find product market fit you feel this like intense pull from the market where they're like oh my god there's so much pain in this thing that we're using today we really want to replace it with something better and panther looks like the way that we align with how we think about security so it's good Good time. Seeing that, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's all about product. It's all about team and and uh, and market, right? Like those are the three elements that make a startup. Successful. Well, go back on one thing you mentioned because I think you know it can be controversial depending on how you do it. So it sounds like you were open source, and then you, yes. you take that code base and come like the exact open source code base, and then change the license. Like maybe explain oh. both what you did and like what your decision behind that yeah. was. So initially, the idea was like, let's go open source and then let's sell a SaaS version, and that's how we'll make money. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually just texting another founder about this like an hour ago because it's very difficult to build a business that way, in my opinion. And I think if you look at a lot of other uh, open source companies, like I'll use Elastic as an example or Docker as an example, right? They have a lot of trouble competing and managing the the OSS for a lot of reasons, and I think. Open source software, like in my opinion, is something that's going to kind of die out from a business perspective because it leads to a lot of inconsistency. It leads to customers having a bad experience and they're causing it and you have no control. And then they associate it with you and they say, oh, yeah, your product sucks. And you're like, no, you're not doing it right. You know, so it's like being (laughs) SaaS and not even having that option. It so so my before I even say that my core thesis around security is that security teams should not focus on operations at all. They should just be focused on security. They should not have to even think about running the tool. And that was something that I was always so central in my career. So I had to stand up logging platforms. I had to stand up SIMs. I had to stand up like case management tools. And it was such a waste of time. If there was just a SaaS, I would have just swiped the credit card and we would have been done. Right. And you don't you lose the benefit over time because everyone's like, oh, no, I run it myself. It's more secure. But no, it's not. It's going to get outdated. You're not going to patch the systems. You don't know how to scale yeah. the systems. It's not scalable. 
Like it's yeah, not so that's better. Certainly, so kind of that's definitely the benefit of SaaS. So like, so then back to what, what was the open source part of that decision? And so you, what did you, I guess, what did, when you say you kind of went closed source, like what did you yeah. actually do? Like what's the thing we, that people- We archived the repo. Uh -huh. So we had, we, we had two versions of Panther. We had the OSS one and then we had a right. private fork that had additional features. Okay. So what, what's in, what's, what's in GitHub was, is a subset of what we, you know, offered as, as Panther Enterprise. And then right. eventually- we kept finding that people were coming to us not from open source. And when I looked at our, our first 10 deals, only one of them came from open source. So we were like, right. why are we putting all this effort in open source and supporting it when we're not getting the return on that and we're not getting anyone contributing other than us? So what's the point? You know, like Sims are also inherently extremely complex systems. So it's right. like, I don't even expect a security person to contribute, let alone even have time to deploy it. You know, that's the thing. <laughs> Right. No, it's it's real because it's like security teams are understaffed. They're running around with their hair on fire all the ways because there's so much stuff to do. And the last thing they should think about is like, oh, I have to deploy this open source tool and like I have to figure out how it works. When in reality, it's like you, you get like almost no benefit from doing that. Like, what is the benefit? Like you get to yeah. control it? No, I think it's like, a good. I mean, sometimes it's controversial. But I also think it's like, uh, I don't know, maybe honest is the wrong word, but it's sort of like, you know, you just want to focus on the things that are important. And sometimes it's like, hey we're not going to be able to maintain this open source. It doesn't drive with our strategy. So I think making the hard switch oftentimes is like, that's better than like limping along and being like, we'll do this and we'll do this. And yeah. kind of argue about this is an enterprise feature and this is an open source feature. Sometimes yeah. it's better to be like, we can help you this way. And if that's not what you want, we understand. Let's shake hands and move on. So so maybe give us the, the state of uh, where to stay. So obviously it's hosted as a SaaS. Is that the only way I can use it? Can I you know, yes. buy an on-premise version? You're 100% SaaS. No operate. That's how you get to the zero operational cost. Come to the SaaS, right? Okay. And then yeah. I think, you know, the one thing that sometimes people get skeptical, maybe going back to your, your analyst days, right? Is that when um, someone says, use my SaaS service, it's like, will it scale? Right. That's like, it's like, I have, I'm a big company, whatever, pick your big, large company, enterprise, whatever they want. And I'm going to send you all this stuff. You know, are you sure you can scale? So I'm sure this question comes up. Like what's, how do you make the the enterprise customer feel at ease that like SaaS is the way to go and you're going to scale with what they need? Scale will never be a problem, in my opinion, for us in terms of like viability. Mm -hmm. We we actually have had no one break our system due to scale, which is hilarious because we've had customers turn on log sources that have started sending like 10 terabytes of data more a day and we just didn't notice. Right. And, and then we went back and looked and we're like, oh, wow. <laughs> um so scale is never the thing I worry about. I think if anything, someone would ask about security, right? That's the thing that, that would come to my mind as, mm -hmm. a, as a practitioner. I would say, well, what are you doing with the data? Like, how are you managing? How are you segmenting the data and things like that? And the answer that I have to that, actually, funny enough, uh, one of the first PRs that's, that's on record in the company is me turning 2FA on for all AWS API calls into our production account. Right. So like, yes. And one of my security guys laughed at that. He was like, I love that. I love that. Like a security company's first PR is to turn on two-factor two authentication. Um, but we do a lot of things around isolating uh, customer accounts. So every customer account is fully segmented by, by account. It's not by VPC. It's literally a separate AWS account. And then we yeah. have like very strict least privilege across like all of the production environment, which is fully separated from our development uh, development environment. So there's a lot of things that we do there to actually promote security, to promote scalability, privacy, like all those things, right? Um, Panther is effectively so so to kind of give like the one liner on Panther, like Panther is a security monitoring platform built for speed, scale, and flexibility. Like that, those are the three core things we always think about when we're building. And the way it gives those things is by providing detections as code. So using Python to analyze your data, uh, security data lake, meaning all the data gets structured and put into a place that's searchable SQL, and then uh, built on, on cloud native, meaning send us as much data as you want. It's going to keep scaling. Um, all right. Well, I listen, I like the sound of that. I think everyone likes the sound of that. So yeah. uh, if someone wants to try it out, like where should they go? How do they... Uh, I don't know how do can we get a free trial? How do they how do they get set up to maybe like get hands on? Because this this is a group of people mm -hmm. that they heard everything you say, but they probably want to play with it. So what should they do? How how do they get a hold hold of it? Run Panther.io. Um, okay. Just and go then, in there. It looks yeah, like you can request we, a demo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can chat with our our SEs and our security people, and they'll they'll walk you through how it all works. And then um, we typically do like a little little proof of concept, and then uh, convert people into 
full customers. And then, you know, eventually we'll get to a state where you can just go sign up for, you know, a month trial or something. But I think um, just operationally, we're not quite there yet, um, but we will be next year. All right. Well, it sounds um, like nobody has to uh, go install a SIM on their own. If they are, exactly. they probably should call you. That's probably the, the notion. And it sounds... If uh, if they want to hear more, it uh, sounds like you, you've got a podcast here. You want to mention your podcast? Oh, yeah, I do. A plug? Sure, yeah. I mean, the plug is Detection at Scale. It's a podcast. It's on Spotify. It's on Apple Music. And it's the the platform that I have the opportunity to chat with practitioners and leaders and really anybody who's who's on the inside of these companies building these security platforms. And to be honest, I don't talk about Panther at all in the podcast. I don't want to. It's not really the purpose of it. Uh, the purpose is just to pick the brain of the people who are actually in the trenches, like working on security at scale. So the one that actually is airing on t- uh, the next one airing is with the VP security at Dropbox, which is going to be really interesting. Um, <laughs> prior to that, I talked with the CISO of Gusto. His name's Frederick Lee. Uh, also a great conversation. I've talked to um, plenty of other people as well in there. So definitely go right, check well, it there's going to be a link. It's, I'm sure it's available right now in the podcast player you're listening to. So just search for detection at scale. But We'll also put a link in the show notes so you can uh, go hear all the fun practitioner stories. I'm sure all of those people have good stories. And then if I just want to find you online, if I want to contact you, where, what's the best way? GitHub, Twitter, something else? Carrier um, Pigeon? Say, what do you win, Jeff? <laughs> I'd say Twitter is like where I hang out the most. Uh, my handle is just my name, at Jack Naglieri. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much the easiest way to get to me. All right, Jack. Well, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Learned a lot. Definitely interested in checking out Panther. And I just want to let everyone else now listen to it. So if this is the first time you've ever listened to Software Defined Talk, welcome. And uh, just like Jack's podcast, this podcast is also available right now, right now in the podcast player you're listening to. So just uh, go ahead and, and uh, subscribe or go visit us at uh, www.softwaredefinedtalk.com. There you can sign up for the Slack. I'll send you some stickers. You know, We're on all the social media. You know, everything that you want to do. So uh, if you want a sticker, all you have to do is send your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com and I'll be happy to send you a sticker anywhere in the world. And with that, thanks for listening and we will talk to you next time. Thank you.